Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today we're doing a classic heat hampered in God's domain movie. It's a 1955 atomic age creature feature called Tarantula. Uh, Rob, this movie was your pick and I'm so glad you picked it. I've never seen it before, but it is both um, hilarious and pretty good for what it is. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's one that I hadn't seen either, but I've been I've been familiar with it for ages because of course this is one of of many films, classic sci-fi and horror films that's referenced in the lyrics to science fiction double feature from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, oh. It goes a little like this. It goes, I knew Leo G. Carroll was over a barrel when Tarantula took to the hills. <laughs> And that's, yeah, Leo G. Carroll, as we'll discuss, is in this film, and uh, the tarantula does, in fact, take to the hills. Now, Leo G. Carroll was much more famous for being in Alfred Hitchcock thrillers. Uh, a funny mm-hmm. coincidence, just last week, I watched North by Northwest for the very first time, and he's in that, playing a character called The Professor, which is what he's <laughs> called in this movie. Yeah, he has he, he he has a great vibe. Yeah, he has a very scholarly atmosphere to him. British uh, actor uh, that moved to Hollywood. 
but yeah, this it's interesting because he's not one of these, na- even though his name ha- is now synonymous with science fiction double feature, he's not one of these actors that, uh, that was really in a ton of B-movies. He's really, really should be more well-known for these Hitchcock films, but uh, yeah. Rocky Horror Picture Show has immortalized him in another direction as well. Well, I think that's the point of the lyric, right? He was over mm-hmm. a barrel. When, so th- I think they're saying like, ooh, Leo G. Carroll, he was having some rough times when he ended <laughs> up in Tarantula. I don't know if that's true. You know, some of the times you see uh, an actor more associated with prestigious movies ending up in a creature feature, it's like, oh, wow, they were really slumming it. But other times you get the feeling that this was just fun. They, they decided yeah. it'd be fun to do that. I mean, it varies wildly depending on the actor, certainly depending on the production. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I didn't run across anything that said Leo G. Carroll didn't like the experience, but... If he were inclined to dislike the experience, he does have to hold a monkey and uh, gets eventually covered up with a bunch of makeup. So there's plenty of room there where I could imagine an actor of his caliber maybe being a little uh, uh, disillusioned by his uh, his foray into sci-fi B-pictures. Rob, he does not only have to hold a monkey, he has to catch a monkey. <laughs> because this movie has an exquisite uh, monkey jump scare where Leo G. Carroll is in the middle of the desert in the nighttime, secretly burying a body in the sand. And mm-hmm. then you see a figure sneak up behind him. It's like a silhouette. What is it going to be? Is it going to be a giant spider? Is it going to be a monster man? And then turn. It's, yep. just a, it's just a little monkey, and he has to catch it in his arms. It's adorable. A <laughs> uh, quick poster note on this one. Uh, if you look up the original poster, it features a giant tarantula, like a puppet tarantula. And I think this is a, an image of one of the puppets that was used to some extent in the film, though a lot of what you see is just a, an actual tarantula. It's made to look like it's crawling across uh, the, the desert hills. But in the poster, or at least most of the versions of the poster, it is made to look like it is holding a woman uh, in its uh, pinchers. This does not actually happen in the movie at all, but it's one of those situations where the classic trope of the time was, of course, show your monster, generally a humanoid monster, holding an unconscious woman. And uh, that was the, uh, that was supposed to, you know, draw in uh, the viewers. It was what they came to expect, uh, even though nothing like that actually happens in this film. There are so many movies like this from the 50s. Uh, I think of Bride of the Monster, the Ed Wood movie, which uh, I think the poster for it showed Bella Lugosi, who is in the movie, uh, carrying an unconscious woman in his arms, which he does not do in the movie. The Attack of the Crab Monsters poster has the giant crab, the giant psychic crab who eats people and gains their knowledge. Uh, it has a woman in a bathing suit in its claw. That never happens in the movie. That puppet <laughs> never carries anybody. It does eat people, but it never holds anybody in its claws. I used to have these uh, some of these universal trading cards that I think had been my dad's or something from way back in the day, black and white, and they have all these images of classic monsters on them. And a lot of them are those monsters either scaring a woman or holding an unconscious woman like we're discussing here. Yeah, the the way the posters always depict women sort of in peril, especially in, in peril in a kind of reclined posture, I think mm-hmm. is supposed to be sexually titillating in some way, in, in a way that would be enough to get people's attention, but also not to get censored. Yeah, yeah. And... It's, uh, you know, it, it, at the time as a child, I would look at these and I would think it was almost like, oh, well, she needs to be carried to bed. And here yeah. is an ape man <laughs> to do it. Um, fun fact, uh, we've watched a couple of movies that have uh, the, uh, the, the German-born actress Helga Linne 
uh, in, in them. Uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, the redheaded uh, uh, actor from Horror Rises, from The Tomb, uh, as well as, what was the other film? Oh, Lorelai's um, Grasp. Yeah, the Lorelai's Grasp. There's some vampire film, I forget the name offhand, but on the, the, the front of it, she is holding a man in that pose. Like yeah. there's, there's like a skinny dude and she's holding him up like that. So it's got a nice gender reversal on the trope. That's what I want. I want 50s movie posters that are switched like that, where it's the lady carrying a giant crab in her arms. <laughs> that would be good. All right. So Tarantula from 1955. This is exciting because this is also only our fifth 50s movie on Weird House Cinema. Oh, okay. I would have thought more than that. But let's see how many. We, we did The Thing from Another World. We did um, a Fiend Without a Face. We mm-hmm did not of this earth and we did the brain eaters is that all of them so far that's it you got them all and this makes five okay when you rank all those together where would you say tarantula fits it? actually i don't know how you'd even compare them which is when you rank <laughs> them in terms of an absurd good time where does tarantula go in there Oh, for sheer fun, I'd say it's top of the pack. For oh, okay. quality, I don't know, Thing is probably top of the pack. Tarantula yeah. and Thing are duking it out for top billing here, I think. Oh, I'd say definitely Thing is the best if the best for non-ironic purposes. <laughs> and though I think it's clearly the worst of all of them, I really have a soft spot for the brain eaters. That one's, yeah. that one's never going to leave my heart. All right, well, let's get to the the elevator pitch on this one. I'm just going to go with what's written on the poster, and it is, all caps, Giant Spider Strikes, Crawling Terror 100 Feet High. Is it still crawling if it's 100 feet high? Something about the word crawling to me suggests uh, proximity to the ground. That's a good point. All right, let's let's hear the trailer. This is a great 1950s trailer. But what if circumstances magnifying one of them in size and strength, took it out of its primitive world and turned it loose in ours. Then expect something that's fiercer, more cruel and deadly than anything that ever walked the earth. Even science was stunned. The new atomic miracle should have been mankind's greatest boon. Instead, when such power to cause phenomenal growth proved dangerously unstable, man was confronted with his most shocking blunder. The isotope triggered our nutrient into a nightmare. A blunder that transformed a tiny insect into the hundred-foot spider that was now ravaging the panic-stricken countryside. Before we continue here, I'm just going to advise everyone out there who is interested in watching Tarantula. Well, you have a lot of options. I watched Tarantula on a double feature disc from the classic sci-fi ultimate collection. Mole People, the Mole People is on the same disc, but uh, I've seen that one before. It's been a while. I rented this from Videodrome. Uh, That collection has some nice titles in it. It's pretty cheap, but there's also a standalone Universal Vault disc that you can rent or purchase uh, uh, digitally most places as well. It does seem to be available on Blu-ray in various formats as well. So however you want your tarantula, it can be provided. I did a digital rental on Amazon and their transfer looks pretty good. Yeah, yeah. This one, this one on the disc was was really solid. In fact, speaking of looking pretty good, uh, so Tarantula has a lot of the same sort of script pathologies as as many other creature features of the time, but 
the special effects in this movie, I would say, are excellent for the time period. I mean, uh, for 1955, the the superimposition of the giant spider onto the desert backgrounds and everything, I, mm-hmm. I think, is is out of the park. Yeah, my son walked in while I was watching the finale, and he immediately said, he was excited to, to check it out. He's like, I can tell it's not real. Uh, so, yes, you can tell it's not real. And definitely this style of giant monster, uh, the, the style of using an actual creature such as a spider or a lizard and mm-hmm. filming it in such a way that it looks big, this largely doesn't really work anymore. But I think if you, yeah, if you take the picture in, in its time, it still looks pretty good. Oh, yeah. Totally. I mean, compare this to other movies from around the same time that use the same techniques. Bird Eye Gordon movies are famous mm-hmm. for this, superimposing uh, something onto a different background to make it look huge. Uh, these look better than most of the people who did this. But so there are two different ways of showing a giant spider in this movie. One is this, uh, you know, photographic trick where they're taking real footage of a real tarantula and then just uh, superimposing it over a background to make it look huge. The other one is a puppet. And I think the puppet in this movie is killer. It's so good. Yeah, yeah, the puppet is really good, and I and I look forward to, to talking about the the man who built the puppet. That's actually a fun story as well. Well, but I guess if we're going to have to start with the director here, one of the things that I didn't realize until after I watched the movie is that this is the uh, creature from the Black Lagoon guy, right? Yeah, yeah, this is Jack Arnold, who uh, not only directed it, he also has a story credit. He lived 1912 through 1992. Uh, noted 50s sci-fi director for responsible for a, a slew of films, so Creature from the Black Lagoon in 54, for sure, as well as Revenge of the Creature in 55. He also did 1953's It Came from Outer Space. Uh, he has an uncredited um, directorial credit on IMDb for 1955's This Island Earth, but he also directed The Incredible Shrinking Man in 57, The Space Children in 58, and Monster on Campus in 58. Prior to these sci-fi pictures, he did a pair of dramas, 1950s with these hands, which sounds like a thriller, but was produced by the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. So I don't think oh. it's a, I don't think it's like a proto Jalo kind of film. It's <laughs> wait, it's, that's the same union that has the uh, the commercial in the Star Wars Holiday Special, or at least oh, one of the oh. famous <laughs> tapes of it, where they're all singing the union song. It's the International oh, okay. Lady Gar- Ladies Garment Workers Union. Yeah, do, uh, do, 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 do. <laughs> the very same. Uh, he also did a 1953 film t- before all this titled Girls Night Out, which indeed seems to be a film noir uh, thing. And uh, during the 60s, he ventured into TV. He did a lot of work uh, on a lot of popular TV shows, rounding it all out with a few episodes of The Love Boat. You know, putting together all of the Jack Arnold movies I've seen now, including Tarantula here, the Black Mm -hmm. Lagoon movies, it seems like he specializes in films where if you really stop to think about it, you kind of pity the monster and, and the humans are sort of the bad guys. Yeah, yeah, definitely that's the case with Creature. Um We've, I think we've talked about that, at least on episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the past, that yeah, it's going back and watching Creature from the Black Lagoon is kind of a weird experience, because the monster is fabulous, and he, he is the thing that you get behind. He is the, the, he is the character that you sympathize with. 
And I'm not saying Jack Arnold meant it that way. I don't think that's what's really intended, mm-hmm. but it does feel that way. Cause in creature, you know, we've talked about this, uh, I think on the show before, like the humans go into his house. It's yeah. not like he's attacking towns or something. Creatures just hanging out in a pond somewhere. And then all these, uh, these, these scientists and people with guns show up and they're like, well, we're going to catch this thing. And I guess you're supposed to be on their side. I don't know. I will say the difference is that, Having a creature in the Black Lagoon seems like a sustainable situation. You can just give the creature some room and he will be fine. The giant tarantula in this movie, I clearly, this is not sustainable. Like clearly something needs to be done. Uh, We can't just keep having this creature. Oh, but to spoil the ending, the way they deal with it in the end is uh, they they napalm it, and then the spider is just burning in the background. You see its hairy legs on fire. The hair is kind of singeing, and they're like, well, the end, a universal international picture. Yeah, but also edible, potentially edible, right? Oh, that giant oh, tarantula meat. That, that could. They. I mean, ultimately, they wanted to solve uh, issues uh, about feeding a growing world. Well, now you have it: giant roasted tarantula, three hundred tons of spider meat. <laughs> yeah. Um, on on the subject of Jack Arnold, though, I was looking into his filmography a bit, and I was really intrigued by this 1957 film that he directed, titled "The Monolith Monsters." which I immediately went to Michael Weldon's books to see if he had written anything about it, and I don't think he had. But the the, the film sounds curious. A meteorite lands near a sleepy desert town, so not entirely unlike Tarantula, but then it starts growing into skyscraper-sized monoliths of stone. So it sounds pretty unique in that the threat is not alien at all, at least not in an organic sense. It's like a, a chemical threat. It's just unchecked rock growth. Mm. So it, it kind of sounds ahead of its time. Like this sounds like something we would maybe watch in the 1970s as opposed to 1957. Interesting. And one more note, uh, Jack Arnold, as an actor, he had a cameo in John Landis's 1985 thriller, Into the Night. I believe he is a man walking his dog in that. Oh, well, you attached a picture from the monolith monsters. And now that I can see it, it's, it makes more sense to me. They are these uh, giant, uh, like, uh, sort of shards of obsidian jutting up out of the desert. But yeah, they're as big as buildings. Yeah, strange. Like, I, I can tell that this probably didn't work without even, it just, this, is, this isn't maybe what the drive-in audience was looking for. They ultimately wanted a monster. Like, how do you even shoot this thing so that it's holding a woman's unconscious body? Oh, now, now that is a job for a creative poster maker. What do you, I guess you have the crystals kind of forming a hand and the ladies there. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it could work. I'm sure a talented poster artist could, could figure it out. All right, let's get on to the screenplay here. Screenplay was written by um, two individuals. There's Robert M. Fresco, who lived 1930 through 2014, also a writer on The Monolith Monster and various TV shows, as well as uncredited writing on 1959's The Alligator People, which should be of note to fans of Rocky Erickson. That's right. If you were one of those hiding behind the trees with moss, forever hearing the swamp birds screaming, uh, or if... It- <laughs> Uh, th- this one's actually less verbose than some of his songs on the evil one, but uh, I do love that line when they see alligator persons in the bog and fog. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's something's really funny about alligator persons instead of alligator people. Yes, <laughs> but uh, but I, I and I don't know for certain certain, but I assume he's referring to this film. Uh, a yeah. lot of those songs do refer back to to classic monster movies and so forth. 
All right, the other screenplay credit is Martin Berkeley, who lived 1904 through 1979. Screenwriter active through the 40s, 50s, and 60s. He worked on screenplays for westerns like Green Grass of Wyoming and Red Sundown, but also films like Revenge of the Creature and The Deadly Mantis, which uh, I believe I've seen this one before. This is a giant killer mantis. Um, uh, Well, it is technically a giant killer mantis, but a giant praying mantis film. Now, I wonder, once you had written one giant bug screenplay, what was it like writing the second and third giant bug screenplay? Do you like, how are you you coming up with new angles on that? What does the giant bug mean this time? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. I think one that's partially answered by Tarantula in that, in the way that Tarantula both uh, certainly matches the sort of pre-existing format of giant animal movies, but also bucks some of the trends, as mm. we'll discuss. And like most notably being, this is not a giant atomic monster creature, even though it's very much a product of the uh, of the atomic age and during a time when so many atomic giant animals were rampaging through cinema. That's true. Uh, they don't say it's directly atomic radiation, though I do think there's a little bit of uh, atomic magic implicated. Mm. It's it, there's a there's a whole sequence in the middle of the movie with some of the most gorgeous techno babble that you have ever encountered. We're going to have to spend some time on that, but I think they sort of are trying to say that there's radioactive something in the juice they're squirting into these animals, but it's hard to tell. Yeah, it's hard to decipher. All right, well, speaking of the science, everyone, uh, please get out your periodic table of classic Hollywood actors, because this movie contains um, Agar. Uh, is, it, is it Agar or Agar? I'm going to say Agar, John Agar. Agar. John Agar, 100% John Agar in this film. Uh, he plays Dr. Matt Hastings. That's right. Today's John Agar role will be played by John Agar, who is just a, he's just a country doctor with common sense, probably a strong right hook. I don't think we ever see him throw one, but you can imagine. Uh, and apparently a permanent sense of bemusement at the concept of equal rights for women. Uh, and he, he really polished his jawline for this movie. He is such, he, such a, a perfect example of the 50s creature feature lug hero. Yeah, if you haven't seen this film and you haven't seen John Agar in anything, you can you, you can still picture him in your mind right now. He's exactly like you think he looks. He yeah. acts exactly like you think he acts. Um, he lived 1921 through 2002, longtime American actor who appeared in films from 1948 through 2001, uh, and even, I think, a 2005 release via, like, delayed release. But you can basically divide Agar's work into two categories, war and westerns and B-movies. And in the former category, he acted alongside folks like John Wayne in The Sands of Iwo Jima, uh, Fort Apache, uh, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, all in the late 1940s. But then in the B-movie category, he appeared in a lot of quality monster mayhem flicks like The Mole People from 1956. Uh, that was on the same disc as this one for me. That's a that's a very fun, uh, like hollow earth type of film. Uh, mm. The the brain from Planet uh, Aros from 1957, Revenge of the Creature from 55, and Hand of Death from 62. I think we discussed doing the the brain from Planet Arus or Aros, however you say that. Uh, we, we ended up doing Fiend Without a Face instead because we wanted to do some kind of brain movie, and yeah. th- there's a handful that look pretty juicy. Yeah, we may have to come back to that one because it has a really fun-looking brain monster in it that kind of floats around. 
So Agar did a lot of TV later in his career, but the B-Movie Association stuck. And I was reading um, on, uh, on IMDb that uh, in 1972, uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland, a fan magazine, they declared him dead. Uh, they said, you know, RIP John Agar, but Agar was not dead. And so he apparently made the rounds at a lot of sci-fi fan conventions back in the day, signing these magazines about his death. <laughs> That's good. Uh, he was at one point married to Shirley Temple, and late in life, he had cameos in uh, two films of note, 1990's Nightbreed, the Clive Barker film, and John Carpenter's 1993 anthology film, Body Bags. This is the one where John Carpenter himself sort of plays the Crypt Keeper. <laughs> Uh, so I haven't seen Body Bags. I have seen Nightbreed. Nightbreed is Clive Barker, and it's full of interesting various monsters. But actually, the thing that most sticks out to me and uh, about it is the character played by David Cronenberg. Uh, yeah, he was uh, he was an actor, just an actor in the movie, playing uh, the main character's psychotherapist, but, but mm -hmm. who also turns out to be a serial killer who wears a creepy sock over his head. Yeah, that's a really fun role. And, and what is ultimately a really fun film? I haven't watched it in a while, but I remember being quite fond of it back in the day. Uh, the, I remember enjoying the book as well. But with Clive Barker, obviously, he's a, he, he, was a big, he is a big fan of classic Hollywood and, mm -hmm. and all of that. So it makes sense that he might bring John Agar in to do a little cameo. But So anyway, the character John Agar plays in this is sort of set against the scientist characters who they're the scientists are off doing uh you know dangerous unholy experiments in their isolated laboratory in the desert meanwhile john agar is just he's he's ready to to slap some common sense up against them today's episode is brought to you by ebay ebay motors is here for the ride Remember when you first saw the potential, and then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. 
Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So that's our male lead in the film, but we also have a, a, a lead female character in the form of Stephanie Clayton, better known as Steve to everyone, and she is played by the beautiful Mara Corday. So born 1930, and uh, as of this recording, uh, st- still uh, still with us. Um, yeah, she was a, a model actress, 50s cult icon. Uh, she uh, Later on, she was in the, uh, the 1958 uh, Playboy magazine Centerfold. She mostly did small acting jobs prior to Tarantula, but this is the film that kind of gave her a chance to shine and kind of propelled her more into the limelight. So she was more prominently featured in films after this point, including the 1957 monster films The Black Scorpion and The Giant Claw, which is a giant goofy bird movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, She met Clint Eastwood on the set of this film, and we'll explain how that is possible in a bit. But um, uh, after meeting on the set of this film, they reportedly remained friends uh, for a very long time. And all of her final screen credits are roles in Clint Eastwood films. The Gauntlet in 77, Sudden Impact in 83, Pink Cadillac in 89, and The Rookie in 1990. In fact, in Sudden Impact... She's the waitress in the scene where Dirty Harry coins the catchphrase, go ahead, make my day. I think she's being held at gunpoint or something, and he saves her. Oh, interesting. Well, you know what? I think Mara Corday is great in this movie. She uh, she really brings a sense of fun and amusement to the silliness here. 
Yeah, it's a it's a fun performance. Um, yeah, she plays a quote unquote lady scientist, and it's kind of a, an interesting role for, for the time period. Uh, I was I was looking around about this a little bit because you you look at some of these 1950s films, and in fact, if you look at uh, the thing from another world, uh, it also has. A, I, I don't know if she's quite a scientist in it, but you still have a, she's at least, what, a secretary to a scientist? You have a very strong female role in that film. I think the character in The Thing from Another World is widely considered one of the examples of the the, the Howard Hawks leading lady type character. Yeah, uh, yeah, and we talked about the, the, the Hawksian um, uh, female uh, role in, in that uh, episode of Weird House that we did. But I was reading a bit about this from, a, this is a blog post by Bob Calhoun, at RogerEbert.com, titled Atomic Age Feminists, the Women of 50s Sci-Fi. And this is pretty interesting because Calhoun pointed out that, first of all, several great examples of female scientist characters or sort of scientist-adjacent characters in such films as The Day the Earth Stood Still from 51, Thing from Another World, 51, Revenge of the Creature from 55. And then I was looking around at the classic horror film board, and I saw a thread where people were bringing up other examples like Them, Rocket Ship XM, The Giant Claw from Hell It Came, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, uh, Pamela Duncan's character in Attack of the Crab Monsters. Mm-hmm. So there's a long list. And uh, so Calhoun in this, he, he cites feminist American art and film critic Carrie Rickey, uh, pointing out that much of this seems to come down to the studio system, which during the 30s and 40s had female screenwriters create the female characters, and that this practice or its influence, the influence of this practice at any rate, may have carried over into the, into the 1950s to some extent. Thus, we have all these nuanced professional female characters showing up in monster movies and sci-fi features um, however, he points out that the reverse seems to be true as well. With the full collapse of the studio system, you find fewer female scientist roles in films of this caliber moving forward. And he specifically, of course, points to uh, John Carpenter's remake of The Thing from Another World, which, as we discussed in our in our episode about that movie, uh, about, about the original, that you know Carpenter's film has no female characters. It's an entirely male film. Um, so uh, it's um, it, it is interesting to look back at all these pictures and see that yeah this is kind of the era of the the B movie female scientist character that is assertive and strong and and generally holds her own with with male characters and counterparts. Yes, there's this interesting uh, mixture where these characters do show up, but of course. Like the funny thing is, is how ridiculously sexist the context yes. still is. So like the, you will have a movie where, oh, uh, you know, so the scientist character is a woman. That's cool. But then she like has to make coffee for everybody. <laughs> that's yeah. All of these movies are in this movie. Um, when she meets John Agar and they're flirting and like the first thing he says is like, oh, lady scientists. Huh? Yeah. He's like, oh, you give women the vote. What do you get? Lady scientists. That's li- yeah. it's literally the line from the film. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's other stuff in here too. Like, there's this one part where he's uh, John Agar's character is a doctor and he's delivering medicine to somebody. He keeps it's kind of a neat uh, or a clever pl- plot device for this. Is he's always being called away on jobs, so mm-hmm. it kind of gets him out of scenes when you need him the, the action to move on. But he's dropping off medication for somebody, and the husband picks it up, and he's like, "Well, do you know women? She won't take it, but you know she'll feel better knowing it's on the shelf." And I didn't even know that was a stereotype. <laughs> yeah, I've never even heard that. I mean, yeah. well, but anyway, um, Mara Corday's great in this, and she seems to like when John Agar makes a lady scientist joke, it just seems to roll off her back. Also, when the first time she meets. Um, 
what's his name? Leo G. Carroll's uh, scientist character. He's like, oh, I didn't expect our new assistant to look like you. Yeah. <laughs> he's just, he's not doing a good job creating a, uh, a, a friendly and productive workplace. But yeah. So it's, yeah, when you're talking about feminism in 1950s monster movies, it's a mixed bag, but it's a, it makes for an interesting analysis. All right. Well, speaking of Leo G. Carroll, yes, he plays Professor Gerald Deemer. So Carroll, we already talked a little bit about him, lived 1886 through 1972, British Hollywood actor, best known for his roles in Hitchcock films like North by Northwest from 59, Strangers on a Train from 51, and Spellbound from 45. He also played the character Alexander Waverly on the series The Man from Uncle, as well as The Girl from Uncle. Uh, I believe he played the same character in both of those shows. Uh, one, I guess, is a spinoff of the other. He also played Marley's Ghost in the 1938 adaptation of A Christmas Carol. He was active from 1934 through 1970. Uh, I don't think he did a lot of films like this. Uh, oh, and he was also in the original 1961 The Parent Trap. You don't necessarily get the sense that Carol is unhappy to be in this movie, but you do get the feeling that, he, you know, he's one of those actors who's clearly kind of in a different league. And mm -hmm. he's here giving a a more subtle performance than you would expect as the mad scientist who's creating giant spiders. Right. Yeah. Like he doesn't, he certainly doesn't come off as your, your sort of cackling mad scientist. And part of that's yeah. in the writing too. Like he's ultimately, you, you buy him more as a guy who's trying to do the right thing. Maybe he got a little sloppy. Uh, may, maybe he should have had some better um, uh, lab uh, safety uh, protocols in place. Uh, but mm. for the most part, he's not, uh, he's not, you know, Lon Chaney Jr. He's not, uh, uh, you know, the, the cackling madman. All right, another interesting uh, actor in this. We have this actor, uh, Nestor Paiva, who lived uh, 1905 through 1966, who plays Sheriff Jack Andrews, who's not taking any crap off anybody, especially off of John Agar. He's our cranky local sheriff. And yeah, uh, Nestor here, American actor of Portuguese descent, did a lot of Westerns, including the TV Zorro show from Disney back in the day, uh, but is most remembered as Captain Lucas in both Creature from the Black Lagoon and Revenge of the Creature. He was also in The Mole People, and his final film was 1968's They Saved Hitler's Brain. We will get into more detail about this as we go on, but this is an an, an unusual type of character. Mm -hmm. Sheriff Andrews here is this hayseed desert sheriff who really thinks that egghead scientists really, they know what they're doing and their hard-won <laughs> expertise should be respected. Right, right. We shouldn't go investigate the mysterious lab. Are you crazy? No, don't mess with those people. And you know what, Doc? You don't know what you're doing. He's just really into science. <laughs> All right. Speaking of science, uh, there's another character that shows up that's worth noting. Uh, this character, Townsend, who is, is he supposed to be a like spider expert? Is he a biologist? I, I don't recall his credentials exactly. Oh, yeah. He's the guy who John Agar goes to visit at the Arizona Agricultural Institute, who shows him a film strip about tarantulas and yep. shares a lot of tarantula facts in a, in a very funny scene. Yeah, it's it's a memorable scene, and this uh, this character Townsend was played by Raymond Bailey, who lived 1904 through 1980. Bailey is best known by classic TV fans as Milburn Drysdale on the Beverly Hillbillies, but he was also in Hitchcock's Vertigo. But yeah, when you hear you, you would hear you know Drysdale, Mr. Drysdale, this is Mr. Drysdale. I didn't know that when I watched the movie, but now that you say it, I totally see it. He 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 is like a snooty bank manager. Yeah. 
All right. We mentioned Clint Eastwood earlier. Yes, Clint Eastwood is in this movie. He plays uncredited. He plays the Jet Squadron leader who shows up to Napalm the Spider in the final moments of the film. Uh, This is not a proper Clint Eastwood movie, so we're not going to get exhaustive on this, but you know Clint Eastwood, legendary actor and director, still active today, not only alive, but active. This was only his fourth screen appearance, um, along with some other uncredited roles in films like Revenge of the Creature, Francis and the Navy, and Lady Godiva of Coventry, all released the same year as Tarantula. He was only 25 years old at the time. Can't really comment on his performance. He just sort of sits in a cockpit and then he's like releasing napalm now. Yeah, he has a mask on. So you really only see his eyes. But man, there's no denying whose eyes those are. That's Clint Eastwood. Right. All right. Another uncredited actor of note, uh, just playing deputized townsman, is actor Bing Russell, who lived 1926 through 2003. Uh, Best known perhaps for playing Deputy Clem Foster on the Western series Bonanza and Robert in The Magnificent Seven, but he was also Kurt Russell's dad, and he owned the Portland Mavericks at one point. Oh. Now, here's a, this is another interesting connection. I alluded to this earlier, but as we, we mentioned, the tarantula, when we see it, is often this actual tarantula that's made to look big, but also we have this tarantula puppet, and this was built by Hua Chang, who lived 1917 through 2003, a Hawaii-born Chinese-American designer, sculptor, and artist responsible for the tarantula puppet on this film, and later responsible for key prop design on Star Trek, the original series, including the tricorder and the communicator. Oh, wow. Yeah. He also did some costumes on uh, key classic Trek episodes. He apparently created the Tribbles. Legendary. Yeah, legendary. He also worked on the original Outer Limits, the original Planet of the Apes movie, uh, the TV series Land of the Lost. He did visual effects in the 1960 adaptation of H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, stop-motion puppets on the monster from Green Hell from 57. And uh, he was the adoptive son of James Balding Sloan, an American etcher, printmaker, uh, theatrical designer, and uh, and also a puppeteer. Uh, but yeah, this was a, an interesting uh, uh, case here. I, I've looked up some images of him, showing him like, creating various dragons and creatures. I think he was also had some involvement in some Disney productions with sort of modeling mm. of creatures to, to be animated. So uh, quite an interesting story. Well, I say once again, bravo on that spider puppet. I, I would say broadly, this movie does not actually have any scary parts, except for one. There's one scene where the spider puppet kind of peers through a window at Mara Corday, and that oh, that that one is actually creepy. Yeah, that that scene I found was legitimately creepy. It it too is also kind of a classic trope of the time period, right? The 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 female character is changing or getting ready for bed, and a mm-hmm. monster appears through the window. Though it's it's kind of funny that in this scene she's she's about to take her um, her nightgown off, you know, to get into bed, and we only briefly see that she is a, she's wearing full length pajamas underneath there. So yes, uh, I don't know what the, the spider thought he was going to see, but uh, at still- any rate. The tarantula is peeping in, though it seems clearly that this is not a lusty peeping in. This is just like no. looking for uh, fluid-filled humans to drain. Right, yes. <laughs> but also, you know, coming back to Steve, uh, Mara's character, you know, she's she's a smart lady. She knows there is a rampaging spider on the loose, so wear sensible garments to bed. You don't want to, don't wear anything you don't want to take off across town in. That's correct. And she does get out of the situation. Yeah. 
finally, on the music note, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because it's my understanding that this was just studio stock music uh, yeah. used on this. But the two individuals that are uncredited are Henry Mancini, who lived 24 through 94, and Herman Stein, who lived 1915 through 2007. Uh, Mancini notable for such scores as The Pink Panther, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and 69's Romeo and Juliet. And Stein, he worked in a lot of 1950s sci-fi films, including It Came From Outer Space, Revenge of the Creature, This Island Earth, and many more. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, 
Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. All right, is it time to talk about the plot? Let's do it. Let's dive right in. Well, so the film begins in the desert. Uh, actually, one of the first things I noticed about it was one of the opening desert shots All the uh, shows these different plants, kind of scrub plants out in the desert, and they're all kind of equally spaced uh, uh, apart from each other, almost as if they're trying to keep their distance. I don't know if that was a detail chosen on purpose. But anyway, you got the scrub plants, you got rocks, sand, wind, and then... A man in pajamas with monster makeup on his face stumbles around until he dies. Oh, man, this game's full-length pajama game is strong. Um, It makes me think of how I remember hearing that supposedly on HBO's Game of Thrones, there was like somebody from the studio or from the, the, the network there that was there just to remind the director. It's like, hey, you can have full nudity in this scene if you want. I like to think there was somebody on this picture that's like, hey, uh, by the way, if you want full-length pajamas in this shot, you got it. We got them in all sizes, ready to go. Oh, they do them up and down, so many pajamas. But this monster makeup looks pretty good, and it's a strong start to the film. I, yes, I would say the monster makeup looks good, though it also it does not match up well with something that they, they end up attributing the monster makeup to. Yes, because this individual is supposed to have acromegaly. Uh, the um, uh, the rare condition that causes uh, excessive production of growth hormone uh, by the pituitary gland that results in, in large bones in the face, feet, and hands. Right. T- today it's known as acromegaly, and that that's the – I'm not positive, but that's the way I've always heard it pronounced. Yes. In this movie, they call it acromegalia. And uh, from what I can tell, this movie is not at all a good barometer of what acromegaly actually looks like. Of course, acromegaly does – uh, affect to different body parts with, uh, you know, with abnormal growth. You get uh, changes to the facial features and so forth. But this movie just straight up puts people in Frankenstein makeup, which is not accurate. So don't get your ideas about acromegaly from Tarantula. Yeah, I mean, I guess they were sort of going for a Rondo um, uh, Hatton look on these characters. He was, of course, was a was a, an actor who appeared in a lot of genre pieces. Uh, he died in 46, so, you know, he'd been, he was dead by the time this came out. But he was kind of a signature presence in a lot of these uh, old Hollywood horror films. Uh, so maybe that was sort of the inspiration uh, here. Yeah, possibly. The, the makeup, either way, the makeup takes, takes this to fantastical extremes. And I guess mm-hmm. that makes sense because this is, I don't know, maybe we're supposed to understand that this is not actually acromegaly. It is just some acromegaly resembling science fiction condition caused by the the intake of this uh, high, fictional nutrient yeah 
But I can see where audiences would have been rather shocked and surprised because you know you're getting a giant spider in this film. That's definitely yeah. going to happen. And then suddenly there's this something else is going on. You have some sort of uh, you know strange mutations and deformities occurring just right off the bat. The first character you meet in this film uh, is, uh, is, is severely disfigured. People may be wondering, did I walk into the wrong movie? I thought mm-hmm. I was going to see a giant spider. Yeah. But no, so you get this character, he collapses in the desert, and then credits. And then we begin the main plot. So the first thing we see is a small aircraft that is landing at an airstrip in Arizona, and out steps John Agar, apparently the pilot, uh, a a pilot, the pilot of this plane. Uh, But no, he's not a professional pilot, he is a doctor. He starts talking to the guy who works at the airstrip, and the uh, the guy says, what's the score, Doc? Uh, So I guess we understand he's a doctor, and he responds, uh, twins, cutest things you ever saw. And this initially really confused me because I erroneously assumed that he was reporting that he and his wife had just had twins. And that does not make sense within the rest of the movie. Uh, It wouldn't make sense with the situation at all because, you know, John Agar is going to be your leading man. uh, And a 50s creature feature hero always needs to be single so he can have a romance with the leading lady. But upon revisiting, I realized he's talking about delivering twins for some people who are living out in the desert. There's somebody else's twins. So I I guess he does remote house calls in his airplane. I guess so. I mean, I I know that this has been the case in remote places around the world where you would have doctors flown into remote communities and so forth. But this picture kind of makes it seem like he's just flying to somebody's house, landing in, in their, their desert front yard and then climbing out and going in, delivering some twins, maybe just leaving the, the engine running, coming back out, getting in the plane, flying home. Yeah, it really does seem to be suggesting that. I don't know exactly how to read this. Every little bit of uh, a window we get into his actual medical practice does not inspire confidence. <laughs> right. Like, isn't his office in a hotel? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay, so he, he hops into his convertible and heads into <laughs> town, and he lives in this this Arizona desert town. What's the town called? It's called like Rock Desert or something. Something to that effect. And I should note that even though it's supposed to take place in Arizona, everything you see is California. This film was this film was definitely filmed in California. So we're seeing the California desert, even though it's supposed to be the Arizona desert. As you already mentioned, um, drives around in a convertible with the top down, no hat, no sunglasses. No. Yeah. This is a guy that lives and works in the desert. And yet, no no effort at all is put into protecting himself from the sun. <laughs> uh, that, I just couldn't get past that the whole movie. I'm like, put the top up on that convertible. Can you, you know, grab a hat or some shades or something? Yeah, but so you, you mentioned that it, he seems to work out of a hotel. I concluded the same thing. So he goes into town and we casually meet several characters John Agar, again, is a doctor, but he seems to use the lobby of a place called the Palace Hotel as his office, like literally using the desk worker at the hotel, who's this funny older guy named Josh, as his secretary. Uh, like, like Josh like takes phone calls for him, places phone calls for him, listens in on the phone calls. Yeah, this, this guy, Josh, was played by Hank Patterson, who uh, later went on to have a role on Green Acres. So I think a lot of people, uh, at least used to, I don't know how well-versed modern viewers are in Green Acres, but a lot of people would watch the film and they'd be like, hey, it's the guy from Green Acres. What do you call this type of stock character who's like the 
the kind of funny, uh, older, wrinkly guy with sort of, kind of a wrinkly hound dog face who is the butt of jokes. I, I don't know what you... It seems to be a type. Yeah, I don't know. But it it's kind of nice that it, it it shows you in a movie like this, they were thinking about, okay, well, well can we make this scene funny? We have to have a, some sort of character interacting here uh, between this character and another. Uh, let, let's get somebody hammy in there. Uh, do a little bit. Nothing, nothing too extreme, but just enough humor to get us from one scene to the next. Little did they know that the movie was going to be plenty funny enough with all the science scenes. <laughs> yes. Okay, but anyway, Dr. Hastings here, John Agar, he gets a call from the sheriff. Uh, it's, you know, we need you to come down to the police station to help with something. There was a, a man found dead in the desert, but he looks unusual. And the sheriff, this is, uh, again, Sheriff Jack Andrews, played by Nestor Paiva. He thinks there is something about this man's face that in one sense, looks like a guy that they knew named Eric Jacobs. Uh, but then there's something else about him that says, well, maybe it ain't him. And so I think the audience here is clearly supposed to conclude this was the guy in pajamas that we saw mm. before the credits. And we learned that Eric Jacobs was a biologist who worked with Professor Deemer, an old scientist who's doing research at a secluded house out in the desert. And they want John Agar's opinion on the body. But then, while John Agar is investigating, uh, Deemer himself arrives, and he identifies the body. He says that the cause of death was, again, that condition, acromegalia. And John Agar says, well, yeah, okay, so it kind of looks like that, but also some people saw him just a month ago, and he didn't have any signs of it then, and acromegalia cannot progress that fast. So they argue about this. Deemer says it is acromegalia, and Agar says there's never been a case of acromegalia working like that, and then Deemer says... But the history of medicine is the history of the unusual, which is a fantastic rhetorical gambit, right? Like anybody who says anything seems implausible, you could just say, but isn't the world very strange? There's no way to argue with it, right? Like I yeah. can breathe in outer space and I can digest lead blocks for nutrition. And you might say that's not possible. And I say, is medicine not the history of the unusual? <laughs> Uh, anyway, Deemer says, well, Eric began to complain of muscle pains four days ago. He says, uh, he says, these things happen as you grow older. And then <laughs> eventually Deemer leaves and Agar is talking to the sheriff and he's like, well, there's no way this is acromegalia. And the, the country sheriff just forcefully rebukes him. He says, uh, the quote is, yeah, a young fellow like you can't stack what he knows against the professor. So it's, and th this is a repeated theme. The sheriff in this movie is an egghead professor super fan. He's got all these lines that are along the lines, you know, it's like, uh, look, John Agar, all you have is rugged, all-American common sense, and that don't mean nothing compared to the highfalutin ivory tower book learning of a reclusive professor with foreign accent. It's the exact opposite of Fiend Without a Face, in which yeah. everyone was super suspicious of the science facility and its possible connections to all the strange things that were occurring. But here, the sheriff's not having any of that crap. Yeah, totally. He, the sheriff the sheriff has so much faith in the professor. Uh, and, and John Agar actually like ribs him for it. He's like, well, I guess there's no getting over the wall of prestige. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we follow Professor Deemer now. He goes back to his lab. We see him checking on his experiments. And he's got all these specimens. He's got giant rats and giant rabbits and giant guinea pigs and a giant tarantula in a mm. glass tank it's like an aquarium tank but i guess without water in it and we see him working on his notes which include like numbers of days since an injection of something the farther out from the injection the bigger the animal gets 
And the tarantula is already too big. Like, it's already yeah. irresponsibly big. This is already, like, giant tortoise-sized. Mm-hmm. Anyway, while he's doing his experiments, oops, there's another guy who looks like Eric Jacobs did at the beginning. And he comes in, he bashes Deemer on the head with something, he sets fire to everything, he injects Deemer with the mystery serum. Uh, this guy is identified as Paul. So I think this was Deemer's other research assistant. The, mm-hmm. the, there were the three of them working in the house, and two of them got this condition. Oh, and during the fighting... The glass of the aquarium breaks, and the tarantula escapes out the open door while the humans are fighting. So Deemer survives this. I think uh, I think somehow Paul Paul is killed in the fight, and Deemer manages to put out the fire, but his laboratory is ruined. And then he heads out in the middle of the night to secretly bury the other guy. This is the scene with the hilarious uh, monkey jump scare that I mentioned earlier. But oh, it yes. also ends in a very cute and sweet way. After Deemer catches the monkey in his arms, he's like, Coco, you startled me. And he <laughs> clearly loves his monkey. He's like, oh, your paws are burned. I'll, I'll help you. You have to get some monkey bomb. Monkey bomb will go right on there. Uh, so then we go back to more action with John Agar and the sheriff. John Agar shows up back in town to report. He's like, hey, I followed up on this. I went to the medical library in Phoenix, and I confirmed there has never been a case in recorded history of acromegalia developing in four days. And he says, I may be a simple country doctor, but I know what I know. And uh, and again, the sheriff is not having it. He's like, are you trying to say the professor was lying to us? Uh, you want me to charge him with confusing a country doctor? He is ruthless in just dressing down John Agar in these scenes. Yeah. But John Agar's suspicions are not only not going down, they're mounting. He's suspicious now, not just about the death. Uh, he's raising a, a big old eyebrow at the whole operation. He mm. says, Jacobs and Deemer are two of the leading nutrient biologists in the world. And he says, when there are two guys like that, they hole up in a remote desert mansion. You know what that means. They're probably trying to do secret research. Mm. Oh, and then we, we meet another character. Here comes Joe Birch, the newspaper man, uh, who just wanders into the into the office. And he, he's on the case. He wants information. And he's going to go investigate Deemer himself. We get the impression that he is an irritating and tenacious attack dog. Yeah, uh, I, I looked up this actor, and he... He appeared in a lot of things back in the day. I think he was on the Andy Griffith show at some point. Uh, I couldn't pinpoint exactly what I recognized him from, but he has that face, that um, that smug. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a face that's, that's smug and a little too assertive. You know, he's uh, he's taking too much pleasure in, uh, in messing with your business. And I feel like that's probably the sort of character he played a lot. I don't know if you agree. But to me, his face has has slight notes of Christopher Guest. Mm, yeah, maybe so. Yeah. Anyway, okay, so we just met another character. We're going to meet yet another character, and this is when Mara Corday shows up. She arrives in town by bus. She's got a bunch of luggage, and she goes into the hotel and meets Josh there. Oh, old Josh. And she says, uh, Hey, uh, I'm looking to get to the Deemer house. You know, how can I get there? And he gives her this whole speech. It's basically, Well, you can't get there from here. She, she's like, wouldn't, Couldn't you call me? Uh, would you mind calling me a cab? And he says, I wouldn't mind it a bit, but it won't do no good. <laughs> but anyway, what do you know? John Agar walks in, and the moment he and Mara Corday size each other, other up you know there, there might as well be a saxophone lick on the soundtrack it's just love at first sight they're immediately flirting and john agar is going to give her a ride to the deemer house 
there's a reaction to this whole scene where uh, Josh, the the hotel guys, he th- they leave and he just leans back and says directly into the camera, "It's getting to be a fast world." <laughs> but so we're with John Agar, Mara Corday. They introduce themselves to each other while riding in the convertible. Uh, she says, uh, "Oh, she makes clear her name is Steve," and he yeah. goes, "I like Steve." <laughs> and they, <laughs> and they, they flirt, and you know he wants to know, "Hey, why are you going out to Deemers? What's going on there?" And she explains, "She's." getting her phd in biology and she's going to study with deemer and jacobs uh and this is where john agar says the line i wrote it down he says i knew it would happen give women the vote and what do you get lady scientists and her retort is well students so far (laughs) but so she explains she's going to live at the house and cook for them but also do science in the lab yeah, it seems like they're asking a lot. Like, this is really, this should have been like two or three different hires here. And yeah. they should have just kept Steve for, for just lab work uh, type stuff. And you know what? They maybe should have arranged for transportation between the <laughs> town and their secluded um, uh, laboratory here. Well, I think Deemer doesn't even know she's coming. It's a, She only made arrangements with Jacobs, remember? Oh, and he, that's and right. he died in the desert. Uh, oh, and so they, they also talk about that. John Agar's like, well, by the way, the guy you're coming to meet here is dead. And she's like, oh, no. But anyway, when so they're, they're about to arrive at the Deemer house. And what follows is an absolutely extraordinary scene of nonsensical technobabble where Professor Deemer is explaining his experiments to Mara Corday and John Agar. So they arrive, uh, Deemer, uh, the Deemer character is already in the middle of an interview with Joe Birch, the newspaper man. Uh, you know, he's, he's explaining what happened to his lab. He's got a monkey on his shoulders while he's doing it. And uh, Joe Birch wants to know more about what happened to Jacobs, but Deemer is done. He's like, this interview is over. And uh, Joe Birch has a sidekick with him. It's a cowboy photographer named Ridley, and he wants Ridley to get a picture of them. He's like, pat the monkey, professor. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, the the newspaper guys leave, and then uh, uh, Matt Hastings and Steve are left there with Deemer. And Deemer, of course, is like, what? Who are you? Uh, before Steve can introduce herself, Matt jumps in and says, this is Stephanie Clayton. She goes by Steve. You know, she's the graduate student who is going to come work with you in your lab. Or maybe not with you. I think he, she's the one who is going to come work with Professor Jacobs. You know, unfortunately, he turned into a Frankenstein and exploded in the desert. Um, so I guess she I guess she has to assist Leo G. Carroll instead. Yeah, and this is the scene where he's like, well, you probably don't want to stay, but uh, if you want to, then fine, we can use you. Um, yeah, exactly. He's like, uh, I'm not sure you want to stay on, seeing as you know how my lab is on fire and everyone is dead. <laughs> and she's like, oh, I would love to be of service. Um, so they begin the lab tour. Oh, this is also the scene where he's like, uh, he says, I didn't expect to see a biologist that looked like you. I mean that as a compliment, of course. <laughs> Deemer, Deemer. <laughs> It makes you wonder, like, is this what happened to the other two researchers that Frankenstein themselves? Like, did they get sick of Deemer making annoying comments at them? And they're like, it's time to inject the nutrient. Yes. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag-A-Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Anyway, begin the lab tour. So uh, Deemer explains, everything that I have and care for is here. Um, and so they're looking around, and John Agar starts looking down into a containment box, which is 
It's one of those boxes, like in the credits of The Simpsons, you know, it's got the gloves, the sealed gloves coming in from the outside so you can manipulate stuff on the inside, but it stays contained. This is a great lab scene, by the way. The whole set is great. Uh, there's there's just a lot of fun gear. There are scenes even, I think at this point and later, where there are like multiple Bunsen burners going in the background yes. with various uh, glass containers having bubbling liquid. So there's a lot going on here, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a neat set. Totally. And they leave the beakers burning when they're yeah. like, they leave the house and the beakers are still burning. Yeah, I think it's that kind of sloppiness that that's what led to a giant spider rampaging across the hills here. I have to agree here. Okay, now here's where some of the techno babble starts. John Egger, he looks at the beaker. He says, oh, what's in the beaker? Deemer says, a nutrient. Steve says, you mean a synthetic? <laughs> How does that follow from a nutrient? I don't know. Deemer says, completely non-organic food concentrate. Medicine has lengthened the lifespan and people live longer. But the food supply remains fairly static. World population is increasing at the rate of 25 million a year. (laughs) An overcrowded world, that means not enough to eat. The disease of hunger, like most diseases, well, it spreads. There are 2 billion people in the world today. In 1975, there will be 3 billion. In the year 2000, there will be 3,625,000,000. You're off by a few billion there. Um, And he says, uh, the world may not be able to produce enough food to feed all these people. Now, perhaps you'll understand what an inexpensive nutrient will mean. And uh, John Agar, instead of saying uh, everything you just said is wrong, he says, well, uh, not many of us look that far into the future, sir. And (laughs) Deemer says, our business is the future. No man can do it on his own, of course. You don't pull it out of your hat like a magician's rabbit. You build on what hundreds of others have learned before you. Okay. John Agar then says, I thought synthesis was impossible without a bonding agent to hold everything together. Deemer says, and we use the simplest of all, the atom. Let me show you. And then they motion to a room that's like sealed behind glass, but there's a table in there with a bunch of vials on it. And then Matt, looking through the glass at these vials on the table, says, that's an isotope, isn't it? (laughs) Deemer says, a radioactive isotope, ammoniac. And then Matt says, and that's what binds your solution? Deemer says, binds it and triggers it. Using it, Eric's dream and mine may be a reality before, but then there's a phone call that interrupts whatever he was going to say, interrupts this beautiful <laughs> sequence of events. And I was just thinking, by God, this like we could do a whole episode on just trying to sort out the weirdness of, of all the science babble he just said. Now, it is worth noting that it is Leo G. Carroll saying all of this science babble. And so it is at least stated in a very nice British accent, which yes. perhaps makes it a lot more um, believable for all the wrong reasons. I guess what they're all saying is sort of equally like, huh? But the John Agar lines sound much stupider than the Deemer ones. Like yes. when John Agar says, that's an isotope, isn't it? <laughs> it's just like a table. <laughs> yeah. But if I understand the scheme here, the, the, well, the scientific objective here is the population is growing. There's not uh-huh. going to be enough food for everyone. So what if we could just inject nutrients directly into our bodies so we don't have to eat? 
I think that is the idea they're saying. Now, of course, they get all the population statistics wrong. And, of course, you know, at the time this movie was being made, I don't, I don't have a lot of uh, knowledge about this, but, you know, some in the mid-century, I think, like, the 50s through especially, I think, like, the late 60s, early 70s, there was the the third agricultural revolution going on, you know, the, the green revolution, which had a mm-hmm. bunch of changes in, in crops that allowed for increased crop yields and, and food production. Um, so it's interesting that this is simultaneous with like real advances going on in the world, but by completely different means, right. uh, by completely different means than using an isotope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but anyway, so the phone call it's for John Agar. He's got to go do a house call. Uh, but before he leaves, he gets Deemer's permission to do an autopsy on Jacobs to see if it was really, uh, quote, acromegalia. And then so he's leaving and then Deemer's talking to Steve and he's like, well, now I'll show you to your quarters, which uh, <laughs> just made me think basically it's, it's going to be like, Steve, uh, let me show you to your glass aquarium tank, where, the one where you'll be staying. Uh, the previous tenant left a few patches of silk webbing and some rat <laughs> corpses. We'll have to get those cleaned up. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so we follow John Agar around. He does the autopsy. He comes out to talk with the sheriff and admits that his suspicions were wrong. He says, yep, yep, the death was caused by acromegalia. And this is where and the uh, the sheriff's like, you mean the professor was right? <laughs> this scene, by the way, takes place in front of two stained glass windows, which yeah. uh, I've read online that w- at least one of these windows was later used in Psycho. Oh, interesting. I have to say, a colorful stained glass window like this, in black and white, it has a unique kind of feel to it, um, mm-hmm. as it does in Psycho. I agree. I don't recall when it is in Psycho, but I, I can totally see that. It it, mm-hmm. it clicks for me. It seems to make sense. Uh, but so, yeah, I, I guess they're in the medical examiner's office or something, and... Um, yeah, so you know the sheriff's like, you mean the professor was right? And then he does another just absolutely brutal, demoralizing dressing down of, of John Agar. Oh, yeah, this is where he says, next time I'm going to bring in a doctor from Phoenix. It's just, yeah. just so brutal. Like, I feel like most, in real life, how many professionals would take this degree of, of, of dressing down from uh, the old crank? But, uh, but Agar just kind of takes it, takes it in stride. Well, nothing bothers him. Yeah. Uh, so in the middle third of the movie, uh, I'm going to skip more lightly over a few things here, but we see Deemer and Steve working in the laboratory. They're getting more explanations of uh, of how the nutrient works, what's gone wrong with previous experiments and so forth. Uh, Steve, oh, there's a part where Steve has to leave for town and she says the line is, science is science, but a girl must get her hair done. <laughs> so she's going to go get her hair done. Oh, and also uh, oh, and buy this- like 30 things. Like we yes. later run into her on town. She has like 30, well, not, not 30. She has a bunch of parcels that yes. she's picked up. So I don't know. I mean, she did just move to the area. I'm sure these are all important purchases. Well, but also we're supposed to get the impression that this town has like a hundred people in it. What's yeah. the shopping district like in rock <laughs> desert, Arizona or whatever this is. Yeah. Uh, so John Agar and Steve meet up while she's in town and then they walk around, sit on benches and they flirt and they have a romantic afternoon that ends with them going for a ride in the desert and they have a uh, have a nice uh, hike and sit under a rock formation to have a cigarette. When suddenly there is a landslide that nearly crushes them, and they have to uh, they have to get out of the way. By the way, the whole time they're out in the desert here in the middle of the day, John Agar is in full jacket and tie. <laughs> yes, with those enormous shoulders on the that that that, that jacket. I just I yeah. was weirded out by the jacket the whole time. Is it like, a I wool guess it's jacket. The, I, yeah. <laughs> 
I guess it's the style of the day, but nobody else's shoulders are that big uh, yeah. by virtue of the garment alone, seemingly. I don't know, maybe Agar's shoulders are really that long, uh, but I doubt it. Mm. Well, so after there's a, a landslide, Steve is like, I've had enough of the unknown for one day. And uh, she she's sort of pondering in the car. She's like, that rock slide, something must have caused it. You could almost tell like an earlier draft of the script had her say like, it's almost as if there was a giant spider up there or something. <laughs> and this is when John Agar says, you can't second guess the desert. <laughs> But we see we start to see Deemer uh, presenting the same symptoms as his colleagues from earlier. Uh, you know, he, he oh, uh, Steve shows John Agar around the lab some more, and Deemer's like, "You shouldn't have done that. I, you, you should, ex- you know, you're, you're not allowed to bring people in." And then, meanwhile, John Agar and the sheriff go investigate a rancher's complaints that his horses and cattle are being stripped of all flesh in the night, mm-hmm. and uh, it's leaving just piles of clean bones in the grass. Uh, later, I think the rancher himself is eaten mysteriously, and they find that a car was thrown off the highway as if it was picked up from above and tossed 30 feet. But they also keep finding big, strange puddles of some sort of whitish substance. Mm-hmm. And uh, at first, they're they're all like a little too unconcerned over this. They're like, like, what is this? Why are there giant puddles of, of white liquid? And they're like, ah, it's probably not related. <laughs> but then they eventually come back around to it. John Agar tries to assess what is in the in the puddles of goo by tasting it. <laughs> he like he dips his fingers in the goo and he like puts it in his mouth and then he goes, "Ugh." <laughs> it's, well, it's not, not good. Milk, not milk, <laughs> it's not cheese. Uh I don't know. I have to have it tested. I think he concludes it's insect venom. Mm. But also in this middle section of the movie, we start getting more and more uh, shots of the actual tarantula. Like we watch the tarantula attack a bunch of horses on a ranch at night and then attack the rancher, throw the car off the road and so forth. And uh, man, again, the special effects look pretty great. Yeah, yeah, they do. Um, and the, the spider comes off as a real threat. Uh, it's it's kind of scary to why you don't you know see people visibly digested by the spider and so forth. But it's still uh, pretty horrifying to see the see it uh, come in and they'll, they'll cut to the I think the puppet uh, spider pinchers and all as it's uh, actually supposed to be grabbing the individual and then they cut away and leave the the grisly details to your imagination as it should be in a film from this era. Yeah. Well, eventually, uh, Steve gets concerned about uh, Professor Deemer because of the symptoms he's showing, and uh, and so John Agar goes to help. Uh, he, he shows up there, and Deemer can hardly breathe, and so John Agar uh, gives him some kind of injection. I don't think it's specified what it is. But here it's finally time for Deemer to spill the beans. He says that, okay, he and Jacobs had been working on this together, quote, since our days at Oak Ridge. I assume he's referring Mm. to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which was the production site for the Manhattan Project during World War II, developing the atomic bomb. So this, along with the sort of vague talk about, quote, an isotope uh, or a radioactive isotope, makes me think they're sort of getting some atomic age stuff in here. Uh, but but they're they're just not very clear on, on how it works. Mm. Anyway, Deemer says, you know, Jacobs, he was an impatient old man. And even though the nutrients sometimes failed on the animals they were testing it on, uh, he thought it still might work on humans. So <laughs> one day while Deemer was out, Jacobs and the other guy, Paul Lund, they decided, well, you know, let's do it. Let's inject ourselves with it. And yeah, it like it them. keeps making the rabbits explode, but you know, it just might work on humans. Let's try it. Let's experiment on yes. ourselves with this dangerous nutrient. 
And that's apparently how it goes down. But, you know, I kept, I, I, I look back on this and I had questions that I'm, I'm sure the film, this is not a film that I think was really trying to play with any uh, subtlety like this. But, like, when one of the Frankenstein uh, researchers injects Deemer, there's this sense of, like, like now you're going to die too. Now you're, like, uh, a vengeance almost that made me question, like, well, well, who injected who? Did Deemer inject them? Because they seem very vengeful towards him if they just injected themselves. But um, the film doesn't actually push uh, an audience um, uh, interpretation in that direction uh, at any point. So it's probably just me overthinking it. Yeah, I know what you're talking about with the, that scene. That is weird when Lund injects Deemer. I, I don't know exactly what to make of that. Yeah, it could be a product of a, like an earlier uh, draft of the script or something, uh, where maybe at one point Deemer's character was supposed to be more malicious, and then they, they realized it uh, worked a little better if he was not. I don't know. But at any rate, he's, Deemer is certainly Frankensteining uh, pretty hard at this point. Deemer says, the isotope triggered our nutrient into a nightmare. That, that's a quote. Uh, Deemer, he also, in the scene, he gets very emotional about his specimens. He's like walking through the lab, kind of saying, you should have seen them all before the fire. They lived on nothing but our nutrient. A rat, eight times normal size. A guinea pig, big as a police dog. A tarantula, lost. All lost. <laughs> oh, and John Agar is... is interested in the tarantula he's like what happened to it and deemer says it got burned but uh we know otherwise and he passes Mm -hmm. out due to grief about his precious tarantula so they put him to bed uh john agar tells steve that there is no hope whatsoever for him uh but gives her some pills and says to give them to deemer for pain and then he says he's got to go check on something because we know what's going on. John, John Agar spidey senses are tingling, especially since he's seen that goo out in the, the ranch. Mm. Uh, so this is where he goes to the Agricultural Institute to get the goo samples tested. He wonders if it's insect venom. Well, he meets Mr. Drysdale here at the lab, and Drysdale <laughs> tells him it's not insect venom. He says, quote, it's from a species called arachnida. Mm. You mean a spider? A tarantula, to be exact. But the scientist says, well, I've never seen so much of it. He says there's more venom in this test tube than you'd find in a hundred tarantulas. And then uh, by simple math, John Agar concludes, well, a tarantula that could secrete that much venom must be a hundred times larger than a regular tarantula. But this is just a sample. Like this is just what he fit into the tube, not the amount <laughs> that was produced. Yeah, this is just yeah what he was able to put in the tube, not not counting the other puddles that were uh, littered all over the place at the scene of the the murder. By the way, I, I hope that the tarantula, the giant tarantula, also ate that plus sized rat and that um, guinea pig the size of a police dog if they escaped. Yeah. Because, um, you know, otherwise, if it's skipping those and going straight to humans, uh, like shame on you, tarantula, at least eat the other plus sized animals first. They never address what happened to the other animals. That I was thinking that after the movie was over. It's like they burned the tarantula, but there could be a rampaging guinea pig the size of a blue whale. Yeah, they could have been the sequel. Just rolling across the hills. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. 
there's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
Well, anyway, John Agar tells the scientist about all the puddles, and the scientist is incredulous. But he, and then he's like, anyway, let's watch an educational film strip about tarantulas. Uh, so we learn all kinds of things in the scene. Oh, first, the really funny thing here is that apparently the scientist begins by using the film strip to demonstrate that there are no such things in nature as tarantulas that are a hundred feet tall. (laughs) (laughs) So like, he's like, you know, see the largest tarantulas in South America, it's only a foot in diameter with the legs stretched out. The ones in Arizona are even smaller. So, so uh, you see, you know, a tarantula, the size of a blue whale is just not to be found in nature. I found it interesting that the video they watch does acknowledge the tarantula hawk uh, wasp, you know, the, uh, the wasp that, um, that, uh, that, that lay their eggs inside of the tarantula. Uh, mm-hmm. and because I was thinking to myself, it's like, well, you know, kudos that they acknowledge that, uh, that these wasps are really at the top of the heap and not the tarantula. Because I felt like they might have been tempted to edit things so that they just position the tarantula as more fierce than it actually is. Well, let's see what they do say, because we learn a lot of things from this film strip. Uh, So we learn the following. Okay, are you ready? Let's do it. Tarantulas have eight legs. Correct. Okay. They can move faster than you think. Uh, Depends on what you think. Yeah. Yeah. They say, uh, this assures him of a long life. The scientist is constantly saying him of the tarantula. (laughs) I don't know why. This assures him of a long life, sometimes 25 years. Okay. Don't, I don't know. That may be I, I, Yeah, I don't have the, the, the facts keyed up on that. <laughs> uh, they say the spider wasp is the tarantula's deadliest enemy. Yeah, strong case to be made for it. Okay, from here we go to tarantula does not know the meaning of fear. Well, yes, that's probably true. <laughs> um, uh, he'll back down a rattlesnake if he has to. Well, we are given the cinematic evidence of this. Uh-huh. Uh, quote, they're flesh eaters. These are John Agar's words. And uh, desert beetles are their usual diet. Okay. We more footage is provided, so we buy this. Okay. Uh, their jaws are powerful enough to pierce a man's finger. So they say. Uh, yeah. Could be the case. They, they pre-digest their food by flooding the wound with a powerful solvent so that the flesh can be sucked into the body. <laughs> Okay. And then John Acar says that would account for the bones. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then finally, the scientist says, "Fortunately, uh, the venom of a tarantula is no more dangerous to a human than a hornet sting." And he tells John Agar, he solemnly looks at him and says, "We must accept them as we do the rest of God's creatures." <laughs> <laughs> what a strange thing to say! <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's just like, I know you don't like it, but you have to accept it. They are part of nature. By the way, if anyone out there is wondering what it might be like to be eaten by a giant spider, we we have an episode in the vault somewhere that we devoted to this very question. That one was fun. Um, Yeah, so the scientist is like, look, you know, they're just part of God's plan. Uh, You got to accept them. And he says each... (laughs) animal as a function within its own world. And then John Agar's like, yeah, but what if one got really big? (laughs) And then the scientist says, then, and this is a quote, then expect something that's fiercer, more cruel and deadly than anything that ever walked the earth. Cut straight to giant tarantula walking through the desert, knocking down telephone lines and power cables. Yeah. And it is just upsettingly big at this point. It's, it's, like it's big enough at this point that you're. It's how many people would it take to feed this thing? It's, it's how many horses? How many cattle? It's just way too big. Somebody needs to do something about this spider. So we see the spider out in the uh, in the desert in the middle of the night. It eats a couple of cowboys who are sleeping out <laughs> under the stars. 
This um, is that classic trope that we've talked about before. When you have new characters suddenly introduced this late in the monster movie, oh, yeah. it's not looking good. They are food. Yeah. But John Agar gets in touch with the sheriff, and he's like, okay, time to arm everyone. Call the state police. Meet me at the Deemer place. And uh, the sheriff uh, reluctantly believes him. Uh, but but here's where we get the attack on Mara Corday in the Deemer house. So the, the tarantula creeps up on the house. Uh, this is the scene where we see the tarantula peeking in through the window. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, it's, a, it's a creepy scene, that big tarantula puppet with its big eyes, uh, very effective, I thought. And this is just the, the beginning of a full-on attack on the house, which is an exciting sequence with lots of cool effects and uh, special effects, uh, big spider parts uh, ramming in through the walls and so forth. Yeah, it attacks the house. It bites through the roof. Its fangs are coming into Deemer's room. I think it, I think it eats Deemer. Yeah, um, Owen Deemer, full pajamas, by the way. Oh, yeah. Glorious, yeah. Yep. Full pajamas with the stripes and the, yeah, he, he's going. Um, Steve escapes. Instead of running into the basement, though, she runs outside. Luckily for her, John Agar is just then arriving to pick her up in his convertible. And the tarantula chases the car as it speeds down the highway. And I love how they don't even talk about it. You know, she gets in the car, they drive away. She's not like, giant spider, that was weird, huh? It's just like, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but they rendezvous with the police, and then every so the police, everybody now sees the spider. So mm-hmm. there's no more debate about whether there's a giant spider. We're all on the same page. Now all of humankind must band together to annihilate it. Uh, and so this part, they get, like, Maura Corday and John Agar get into the police car and ride off. And then we see two cops approaching the spider with guns drawn. I was like, what? Okay, <laughs> I guess they just needed to be doomed. But then it gets even weirder when I see, okay, no, they're not just randomly walking at the spider, pointing guns at it. They were going to get John Agar's car. So the premise of this scene is that this classic convertible is worth at least two human lives. Well, I, if, I, if I remember correctly, it was a 1955 sports car. Like, this is a new car. <laughs> this is a nice car. <laughs> They're like, it's our duty as uh, law enforcement officers to make sure the spider doesn't eat this fine automobile. Yeah, uh, but unfortunately, the spider eats them instead. Uh, so John Agar and Mark Corday ride back with the cops and they're all on the radio, like, get us all the dynamite you can find and get napalm too. And we see mm-hmm. the sheriff saying, doggone it. I wish I had some nitro. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they set a big trap for the spider on the highway. They lay out all this dynamite. They, they really use a lot of dynamite, mm-hmm. but it doesn't work. No, no, no. Also. Okay. Now here's a question that's come up in recent episodes. Why is John Agar in charge here? Biggest shoulders, most prominent chin. <laughs> once again, this uh, what was the movie where we were talking about this problem of movies where suddenly a random civilian is allowed to be involved in police business or even in charge of police business, I guess just because they're the hero? Oh, it shows up all the time, yeah, where it's, someone's a photographer, but somehow they're in every scene of the investigation like they're suddenly co-lead a detective or something. yeah. So, like, basically, John Agar's character gets to call in an airstrike. <laughs> yes. I get why well, he's John Agar, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, it was in Atragon. Remember, it was those those photographers. Remember yes. this? Mm-hmm. Yes, I do now. Yeah. Like, all of the military leaders are listening to what these sleazy photographers are telling them to do. You know, I guess it comes down in an emergency situation, like somebody needs to, to take the lead and tell people what to do. And, yeah. uh, and so it, it holds true in, a, in any emergency situation, including giant spiders. 
Okay, but so the dynamite trap doesn't work. Spider's coming toward town. I guess our only hope at this point is the Air Force. And again, this is such a 1950s movie because it literally just ends with the military coming in and destroying the monster and it works and that's it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So like Clint Eastwood flies in in a jet with a few other jets. They drop napalm on the spider and then the spider catches on fire and it actually looks very brutal. Like you said, yeah. they had some kind of puppet that they set fire to. I felt bad for the tarantula. And then that's just the end. It just that's it's straight to the end title card. Monsters on fire. Nobody has anything to say about it. The end, a universal international picture. <laughs> Why did so many movies of this period end exactly like this? I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Like yeah. no additional character resolution, no denouement. The monster is dead. There's no comment on it. Film ends immediately. Yeah, they wrap it up in a nice tight bow. Uh, they they get the movie uh, you know in under time. And I have to say, sometimes I kind of miss this. I feel like modern films, especially, they're always trying to play like 4D chess with their endings. And sometimes I just want to say, look, it's okay if you just blow up the monster and end the movie. You know, <laughs> it's literally like you see the monster splatter. It's clearly dead, and then just the end. Yeah, it's 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 okay if like the military just shows up and blows up the monster, and you know, we can just imagine how these characters interacted thereafter. Uh, we, we don't need thirty more minutes of movie. Okay, but to counter this, what if it ended with a stinger, which is okay? You know, uh, John Agar and Mara Corday—they're like, well, we're in love now. We're gonna have a happy life together. But then in the background, you see a giant guinea pig stampeding over the mountains. <laughs> well, obviously, I would love that. Uh, setting up the, the the sequel that never was, um, yeah, any of the giant animals coming back that would have been good. Or oh, by the, the same the, the by the naming convention though it would have to be tarantula two colon guinea pig. Yeah, yeah. The the guinea pig is it still the size of a police dog? Because that's the that's one question you have to ask. So different animals grow different in uh, in, in different ways. So and and clearly we've already established that the nutrient affects people in different ways as well. Like it doesn't seem to be making fifty foot tall humans. It's just um, you know killing humans over the course of like four days. Uh, meanwhile, the spider keeps growing and growing. What happens to the guinea pig? Does I it think explode? Does it just stay the size of a police dog or does it become enormous as well? Well, to cite a little bit of biology, I am pretty sure that there are stricter size limits on arthropods than there are on mammals. Mm. I I think presumably you could actually get a bigger guinea pig than you could get a big spider because a spider, what are the reasons? I know we've talked about this before. I think it has something to do with respiration that like arthropods, like insects and spiders, they have to uh, like do gas exchange through their skin. And if you just get a certain amount of volume, you can't do enough of that with the outside uh, surface. Yeah. And plus it goes without saying for, for many, for most animals, you would be asking this question about, you can't just scale it up because yeah. uh, the things are going to happen like the, the the legs are going to just snap underneath its weight it's it's right. like that body size is not meant to be scaled up uh, to the size of a skyscraper it's just not going to support that creature anymore it's, it could potentially just fall apart i think it also affects uh, stuff about body heat and cooling and all that so yeah anyway yeah yeah the, the square cube law comes into play and so forth but i guess what we're trying to say is that this can't happen this didn't really happen tarantula <laughs> fictional film we we are like Mr. Drysdale in the in the <laughs> thing saying, "See, let me educate you about how they're not there are not in fact whale-sized spiders." <laughs> 
Um, fun kind of tie-in for this movie. So I, I watched this film the other day, and a few days prior, I saw the new Jordan Peele movie, Nope, um, over the weekend. Oh. And I'm, I'm not going to share any spoilers on Nope uh, other than to say it's a, it, it, it's a fun, fun flick with a lot of surprises in it. Uh, but uh, Nope takes place in the California desert, with scenes of some sort of a lurking threat being present and also scenes of horses. Uh, mm. So while, again, while this movie, Tarantula, was set in Arizona, it was filmed in California, and it features what feel like some of the same sorts of rolling hills and places, as well as cattles and ho- cattle and horses. Um, so I was looking this up. I was just like, well, I wonder how close the, the settings were. Well, Tarantula was filmed in Lucerne Valley, and pivotal nope scenes were filmed in Santa Clarita, and those are about 100 miles apart. So, um, you know, still same neck of the state to uh, at least a limited extent. Maybe our local Californian listeners can chime in on the differences. Please do. All right. Well, that's that's Tarantula. Uh, again, 1955 film and pr- probably one of the probably one of the, the more entertaining giant animal films of the era that you could seek out. I agree. This one is a lot of fun. I think it's just the right combination of um, brisk pace, uh, great uh, absurdity and uh, genuinely good special effects for the time. It's, It's a lot of fun. All right. Well, uh, we hope you'll join us next time uh, with this, this, uh, these episodes, Weird House Cinema. They publish every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. And uh, normally we're a science podcast with core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But on Fridays, we set most of that aside and just talk about a weird film. Uh, two websites of note for Weird House Cinema. Uh, there's samutamusic.com, which is just a blog where I'll do some blog posts about these episodes and include things like the trailer and related video or audio if it's uh, applicable to the, the film that we're, we're featuring. But also, Weird House has a letterboxed account. That's uh, L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D. Our username there is Weird House. It's a fun website. It's really, I've more and more I'm using letterboxed uh, to help research films. Uh, they have some wonderful interface options. Like, for instance, you can go to our list uh, under Weird House. Uh, we have a list of all the episodes we've done, and you can do things with, like, quick drop-down. You can see, like, which movies we've done from the 1950s, which movies we've done from the 1960s, etc. Uh, which you can separate them by genre and so forth. So, it's a really fun website uh, that, that I'm, I'm, having, I'm having a great time using. And we're on there, so if you're on there, follow us. Uh, we'll all have a good time watching movies together. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audience Audio producer Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. 
Heck yeah. And some waves so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.